God has given us a list of do's and don'ts that we need to obey perfectly, laws, if you will. Understanding we can't obey perfectly, he's then released us from that law through Christ, as we'll see next on Graceful Truth. From Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, hi there. This is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. We're back in Romans chapter 7 today, a message called Released from the Law. And for you and I, this is extremely good news. The fact that we have been set free from the demands of the law because somebody else has met the demands. That is straight ahead today here on Graceful Truth. At the close of the program today, I have an invitation to join us for our Equip Conference, and that's coming up November 10th, 11th, and 12th. I'll tell you all about it at the close of the program. For now, here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast. When you get through with verses 1 through 6, then you raise the question, his readers would have raised this question, well, what about the law, Paul? I mean, if what you're saying is true, what about the the law? And and we'll get into this in the coming weeks. In verses 7 to 12, he answers that question. He shows that the law is good, it's holy. And then we get kind of to the problem area of this text in verses 13 to 25 eventually. When our sinful nature comes into contact with the law, it does not obey. Rather, it does just the opposite. It, it, It wants to do what it's told not to do. It arouses itself to sin. And so he shows in verses 13 to 25 this battle going on that sinners have with the law. And there's a lot of different mindsets around this, and we'll we'll just take our time and go through that. But in our text here today, we'll get started on this. We see here, we're going to look at, first of all, the principle, the picture, the practical application, the purpose, and then eventually the product of of what this, this process takes place. Because he wants us to understand very clearly what he's saying. And so let's look here, first of all, the overview is basically this. Through our union with Christ, we have died to the law so that we are free to bear fruit for God in the Spirit. That's really what sums up verses 1 through 6. And the first thing we want to look at is this principle that he lays down there in verse 1. He says this, and he's, remember, he's, there, there weren't any chapter breaks or anything like that in the original letter. Okay, so he's coming off of this verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he says this, or do you not know brothers? So he's speaking to probably Messianic Jews, people who are of the Jewish faith who've come to Christ, but he may be addressing Gentiles too, but he says, for do you not know brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. And once again, he's, he's speaking to the law in, in general, any law. I don't think he's necessarily highlighting the Mosaic law. I think he's just saying laws are laws. Whether it's the Mosaic law or whether it's a Gentile law, whatever law exists, we understand what law is. We all are familiar with law. And then he says this, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And this is the the understanding, the principle that he wants to give us. 
He wants us to clearly understand that through our union with Christ, we have died to the law, which only produced sin and death. That's what he needs us to understand. And this this principle points out here very clearly. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. The law is binding on the person only as long as he lives. Think of, of some of the different people throughout the history of our nation even. You know, people like Lee Harvey Oswald committed murder, right? Assassinated one of our presidents. But he was never charged. Why? Because someone took his life before he could be charged. There was no charges filed against that man who killed a police officer in San Jose a couple months ago. Why? Because he killed himself. You can't carry a law and, and apply it and enforce it against someone who's dead. That's Paul's point. And he wants us to understand that, that everybody understands that. That's just a common sense principle. You can't charge somebody with something if that somebody's dead. And so he he points that out in in the very first verse. And then in verse 2, he says that the law, or verse 1, he says, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Verse 2 says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. So he gives us this picture. He, he, he wants to illustrate what he's saying to us. So just like he used slavery before to tell us that we're not bound by sin anymore, we have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that in chapter 6. Now he's, he's switching illustrations, and he says, you know what? It's just like marriage. Now, Paul by no means is giving some teaching on marriage. There's been a lot of people in ministry, there's been a lot of even commentators that take this and say, oh, Paul's stating a treatise on marriage, you know, that, it, you know, on whether or not you should be married if you're remarried or they die. Or, he, that's not even what he's talking about. He's simply sharing with us an illustration. He's simply saying, hey, you want to talk about law and, and if you're, you're dead to the law, think about the law of marriage. When you marry somebody, what do you say? Most people somewhere say till what? Death do us part. Now, it's funny because today a lot of people are saying, oh, I don't want that in there. It's like, well, I don't know if I want to marry you then. I mean, I don't know. That's kind of weird. You know, that's, that's, that's part of the commitment of marriage. One man, one woman for life. Now, does God give insight on divorce and death and widows and all? Yeah, but that's not what he's talking about here. We can go to other portions of Scripture, and we can talk about that till the, the cows come home. I mean, there's a lot of information on that. But that's not what his point is here. He's simply using this as an illustration. And I think that his readers probably said, yeah, I, I get it. You know, that's what the law says. That a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Now, if you take this as an allegory or something that, that Paul is trying to relate directly to marriage and directly to the believer in the law, you're going to get all mixed up because it, eventually the illustration breaks down. And when you stop and you, you think about this, when he says a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Then verse 3, he says this, Accordingly, 
She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. That's kind of common sense. If you're married and you're married to somebody else at the same time, I mean, in our society, it's kind of crazy. I, I, even have wacky shows. I mean, there were these people have like multiple, multiple wives and all this stuff. Real reality shows, whatever. I'm like, man, you know, I, I can barely handle one here. How in the world, you know, how would you even do this? But he states it there. You know, if you do that, then you know that's not right. You're going to be an adulteress. That's the, the wrong thing to do according to the law. But if her husband is dead. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. I want to share a couple things about this. First of all, dying to the law does not mean that we are free from specific moral commandments. It's not the law that died. Okay, we died to the law. You have to make sure you get that right. We need to understand that we did not die to the law so that we could just live lawlessly. That's not the point. We don't get to do whatever we want. You know, there's a lot within Christendom today, a lot of the antinomian understanding that they say, well, you know, we're under grace, so just kind of do whatever you want. No. We're called to be obedient to God's commands. And see, that's what Paul's kind of enemies were saying to him. That's why he asked the question, Do we say, in verse 1 of chapter 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He knew what they were thinking. And Paul makes it very clear that we died to the law so that we might be joined to Christ. That we are under his authority. That's what we've been looking at last several weeks. And just as a woman is under the authority of her husband, the Bible says, so we are under the authority of God's law. But when we died to the law, it was not so that we could become our own free moral agents. It was so that we could now be joined to Christ as our head, as our husband. So in verses 2 to 3, the woman husband dies so that she is free to remarry. And then in the application, verse 4, it's not the husband that dies, but rather the wife dies to the law through Christ. That's why I said he's not giving a treatise on marriage here. He's just using an illustration. And you have to keep it at that level. And it's not that we just died, but we were raised, right, with Christ. That's what we've been studying. So he's making his main point here that being identified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, we died to the law so that we're legally free to be joined to Christ. We're not an adulteress. But also dying to the law does not mean that we're no longer obligated to keep certain moral commandments. If you look over at chapter 8, verse 4, the requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us as we walk through the Spirit. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, right, but according to what? The Spirit. So now that we're in Christ, now that we've been born again, now that we have a new, we're new creation in Christ, it's a whole brand new thing that's going on here. And so he wants us to clearly understand that. Um, sometimes it's argued that the only command under the new covenant is the command what? Love. You hear this all the time. Love is the fulfillment of the law, but it's misapplied. 
Sometimes when you talk about the judgment of God to maybe even an unbeliever, they'll say, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe my God. I believe in a God of love. Or maybe a a couple who think it's okay to have premarital relations outside of marriage simply because, well, we do love each other. But the New Testament is abundantly clear, beloved, over and over and over again that any kind of intimate relationship is restricted to a heterosexual marriage. That's over and over and over and over you see that. Love does not mean that we're free to disregard the Bible's moral standards, the Bible's moral commands. I mean, even when you talk about love, the New Testament gives us a lot of instruction on love. It says love speaks the truth. Love does not steal, but rather labors so that they're able to give. Love speaks wholesome, edifying words. Love is not bitter or angry. Love is kind, is forgiving. Love does not engage in immorality or greed. You can look at Ephesians chapter 4 and see all that, all the way through chapter 5. And there's a lot of specific commands that were given in the New Testament to believers who have died to the law. So it's not that... The law doesn't have any kind of impact on us. It's that we're not under its thumb anymore. Well, what does this mean? Secondly, dying to the law means that we are free from the demands of the law as an impersonal system for approaching God. Salvation, hear me on this, salvation has always been and will always be by grace through faith. Not of works. Now, many under... The Mosaic law wrongly thought that somehow they could get right with God by keeping the law. And it's true. If you keep the law perfectly, you will live. Matthew 19, 17, we read that, Galatians 3, 12. The problem is the system kind of brought everyone who tried to live by the law under its curse because no one could keep the law perfectly. Galatians 3, 10 tells us that. And we just read where Paul was, was blameless, but really only in the outward appearance. See, that's how a Pharisee operates. It's, it's all what's on the outside. So they could dress up and they could, you know, kind of perform this little act of keeping the law. But then Jesus comes along and says, well, what about what's going on inside? <laughs> right? What's on in the heart? So you're really not keeping the law if a woman walks by and you lust after her. Even though you don't act on it, in your heart, in your mind, you're committing adultery. That's when Jesus taught things like that. It blew their minds because they thought, well, who could do that? And that's exactly why Jesus said, you have to be perfect just as my Father in heaven is perfect. And perfect means perfect, not just the way you dress. It means perfect through and through. And they knew they weren't perfect. Just like everyone in this room here today knows they're not perfect. We all have been tainted by sin. See, the truth was that in their heart, even in the apostle Paul's heart, that's his point. He was pridefully righteous. And when he met Christ, Paul came to see that he was actually the chief of sinners, he says, in 1 Timothy 1.15. So dying to the law means that we do not approach God by this impersonal system of performance where you're trying to earn a right standing before God. That's very clear. And you, you can't do that. I was raised in a religion in a church that taught that. That, you know, to, to earn God's favor, you do certain things. You go to Mass. You go to confession. You, 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 you take communion. You do, you do all these things. And if you do all these things, 
then eventually God will kind of like you more. And eventually when you die, you'll, you won't go to hell. You'll go to this kind of halfway in between point, purgatory, and hang out there for a while till maybe some of your relatives are nice enough to give enough money to the church and they light little candles enough that somehow you're promoted to glory. That's a strange teaching. You don't find that anywhere in Bible. And when I would go and I was, as an altar boy, I'd ask the priest, after I was an altar boy, actually in college, when I came to Christ, I went back to the priest and I was asking him, this time God was working in my heart, why do we do these things? And at no point in time did the priest open up the Bible and say, what says right here, Steve, in chapter such and such, verse such and such, this is why we'd, he'd say, well, now, you know, the, the, the church is founded on the word of God and the traditions of men, the teachings of the church. And what you're asking falls under the teachings of the church. I can't point to a verse in the Bible that would say that, but, you know, several popes have taught this, and we believe that they teach infallible truth when they teach ex-cathedral, and so we adopt that and we put it on a level playing field with God's Word. That's why, unfortunately, those who are part of that belief system, as sincere as they may be, Whenever you elevate something to the same level as God's word, we got a problem. And so Paul wants us to understand it's not a performance thing here. You don't get brownie points by God for coming to church. It's for your benefit that you're here. It's not for God's benefit. And the third thing here, dying to the law means that we are free from the condemnation of the law. This is what he says in Romans 7, 6, that the law held us in bondage. It put us under its curse because we couldn't obey it fully. Paul refers to it even as a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear in Acts 15.10. Just imagine something around your neck that's just holding you down and just this burden. Romans 3.19 says, The law closes every mouth and makes us all accountable to God. No one is able to be justified by keeping the law. Rather, the law brings the knowledge of sin and puts us under God's wrath. Romans 5 tells us the law increased our transgressions and held us under the reign of sin and death. I mean, if you're trying to somehow improve your life by keeping the law or being religious in any way, you're doomed to failure. If you're looking to somehow gain God's approval for your salvation through that, process. You're not going to be successful. The only benefit of the law with regard to salvation is that it shows us God's impossible standard of holiness that we can't keep. And finally, we come to the realization, wow, I can't do this on my own. I guess I need a, I need a, I need a savior. (laughs) I need someone to save me because I can't save myself. Wow. Oh, the cross. Oh, Jesus. Now I get it. That's why they call him the Savior. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father, but what? Through me. It's through his work that we're saved. It's not our own. But when we are dying to the law, it means that we're freed from that condemnation of the law. And then the last thing here, dying to the law means that we are free from the inability of the law to produce obedience He says this in verse 5, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body, he says, to bear fruit for death. In this context, being in the flesh means 
before we're saved. That's what he's saying. Before we received the Holy Spirit, before we were born again, before we were transformed by God's glorious power of the gospel. One commentator says this, The law apart from the Spirit does not produce obedience. The law apart from the Spirit does not save but kills. And he's going to explain that further in verses 7 to 11. He uses the illustration there of coveting. And for some reason, it must have been a big deal in his society, just like it's a big deal today. See, the problem was not the law that said, Thou shalt not covet, but it's with our sinful flesh that wants to covet. The commandment once makes us want to do what it says not to do. That's just the nature of the law. You know, you can post as many copies of the Ten Commandments all over your house. But you know what? That's not going to make you keep them. That's why it's kind of interesting sometimes when you have certain people go out and they start to petition. and Oh, we have to have the Ten Commandments in the town square. And I'm like, why? Nobody follows them anyway. You know, I get what they're saying. They're driving religion out of society and maybe in their small way, it's, it's, it seems like they're putting it back in. But that's not going to save anybody. Maybe it gives us a foundation upon which to kind of understand what our laws are founded on. But he says the oldness of this letter was a ministry of death. He says that in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7. And he says we basically need a more powerful solution. And next week we're going to look at the phrase he uses there in verse 4, that we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. We're going to see how that applies to us practically. And that leads us on into the purpose and then eventually what ends up to be the product of all this in verse 6. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that we are truly as believers released from the bondage of the law. And yet we still need to glory in it. We still need to respect it. It is your word. It still gives us guidance. But Lord, I pray for any soul that's here this morning that thinks somehow by keeping the law that they're earning your favor. Lord, we know that not to be true. We know that that's impossible. No one can keep the law in its entirety. As a matter of fact, Jesus even said, if you err in part of the law, you've broken the whole law. Lord, that should drive us to our knees. That should cause us to become undone. That should cause us to realize that there is no hope for us outside of Christ. And because of our sin, because of who we are as human beings, we need something outside of ourselves to save us. And Lord, your word says that Jesus came to do just that, that he came to offer himself as a sacrifice as a payment for sin for all those who would put their faith and trust in His way, in Him as the truth, in Him as the only mediator between God and man. And the prayer of faith is a prayer that cries out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me, save me. There's no way I can do this on my own. When you reach that point and you pray that prayer from a sincere heart, God will save you. God will transform you. His Spirit will fill your life. The Bible says, Old things will pass away. Behold, all things will become new. That there'll be a change. For the first time in your life, you'll be able to do what is right in the eyes of God. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. 
We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Another note as we let you go today, don't forget to sign up for our Equip Conference 2017, which will take place November 10th, 11th, and 12th. Now, the sole focus of the Equip Conference is to expose you to biblical teaching and preaching for the purpose of growing you, your leadership, your church members to do effective ministry. Along those lines, our keynote speakers this year will be Justin Peters and Costi Hinn. It's all based out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We would love to have you join us. Go to gracebibleonline.org forward slash equip for all of the details and to register. Again, gracebibleonline.org forward slash equip. That's the Equip Conference 2017, November 10th. 11th and 12th. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.